0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Yes, you have not misdialed. This is the Deadhead Cannabis Show and not the Jimi Hendrix Cannabis Show. Uh, But we had uh, a little fun there with uh, the boys playing around with uh, what at the time was a relatively brand new Hendrix tune. Uh, But let me turn it over to my co-host, Rob Hunt, from uh, lovely California, who uh, is feeling better and ready to rock and roll with us this week. Rob, tell us about that clip and the show and what we're going to be talking about today.
1: Well, yeah, as you know, I always try to find timely clips uh, based on when we're recording, but that is from 421, 1969 from the Ark in Boston. And it was the only time that the Grateful Dead played Foxy Lady. Uh, so I wouldn't say it was necessarily the, uh, the, the best attempt at it, but, you know, give props to, uh, to Garcia and the boys for trying it. But I will say that it kind of led into, you know, a really good run in a venue that they played, I think, um, nine shows at that year, including their New Year's run. So um, it was really the first time that they were trying to build a real fan base in the Boston area, and uh, throwing a little, little bit of Hendrix, I'm sure, it didn't hurt. But that was a tape that I wore to death back in 1992 and listened to um, all the time, basically, because the, uh, the the Foxy Lady led into a Dark Star St. Stephen the Eleven love light afterwards. And those are, are significantly better as they're uh, working on their own materials.
0: Well, look, I have no doubt, but you know, as you and I talked about before this show, for God's sakes, this is what the Grateful Dead is all about, if nothing else, you know, just getting up on stage, and it may have just been that as they were starting the set, Garcia said, what the hell, and maybe, you know, I don't even, I would love to know uh, the story behind what got him to even start doing it, but, you know, it's like this, don't don't forget, this is uh, April of 69, and, and as we've talked about in the past, at the end of February, beginning of March 69, they did that run at the Fillmore, uh, the Fillmore West out in California, and the third night out there, they encored uh, Hey Jude, and sounded a pig pen sounded horrible doing it but it's loved deadheads love it because this is the grateful dead going up and playing a relatively new beatles tune and butchering the hell out of it but everybody knew what it was and had fun and same thing same thing here this tune is only it was released i think in 68 maybe 67 so you know it's not that much farther down the road garcia is like yeah let's have a little fun with it. it it doesn't sound great i agree but i just love the you know the fact that boom at that moment they improvise and then of course you're right where they go with it from there is what really makes it special. Um, But it's it's a great example of the dead, I think, at a period of time. We've talked about this, you know, primal dead era of, you know, uh, 1969. And, you know, they knew how to have a good time and enjoy themselves, too. It's good to see. It's good to hear. Yeah, for sure.
1: And, and, you know, oftentimes when we're also trying to figure out which shows to put on here and which to cover, uh, we try to find other things that it kind of links to. And one of the reasons I picked this one is the run from 421, 422, 423, obviously is sort of coinciding with the 420 holiday. And also on top of that, the the venue that they played at, the Ark in Boston, is still around, but it's no longer called the Ark. It it turned into a place called um, the Boston Tea Party for a while, then it became the Avalon for a while, and now, for the last 20 years, it has been the House of Blues. And it's a a massive venue that's on Lansdowne Street, right next to Fenway Park, right next to the dispensary that I'm opening uh, called New Dia Fenway. And um, more importantly, it's opened by, uh, by big fans of the Grateful Dead, uh, Dan Aykroyd, who you know named the, uh, the House of Blues brand after the work that he did with the Blues Brothers, which obviously was uh, he and John Belushi back in the late 70s. And I use that as a segue because we have an exceptionally fun and special guest today joining us, one of the absolute OGs of the cannabis industry, like the person that, that really like, brought um, the first licensed cannabis dispensary to the United States. Uh, in Lynette Shaw and uh, Lynette I'm super happy to have you on the show but I also picked uh, you know the show I did because I know you've got some um, ties to the Blues Brothers and uh, figured it'd be nice homage to kind of get things kicked off but how you doing welcome to the show
2: oh I'm honored and happy to be here I think this is a a great show and the Blues Brothers I I met John Belushi in West Hollywood when I was up and coming singer and I also had the best pot in town and my manager hooked me up with John to make sure he had some nice pot, and I said, hey John, I'm a singer. He goes, really? He says, can you really, really sing? I said, yeah, I can really, really sing. So he sent Blue Lou Marini and brought me to the amateur night, and I blew the doors down, because I can really, really sing. So then he brought me to the pro night, and there was the Blues Brothers band, and I blew the doors down to the real, original Blues Brothers band, because I can really And I was in the band for four months until John.
1: Blue Lou was the, uh, the sax player, is that right? Lou Lou Marini.
2: Blue Marini. He was my buddy in the band, there. but I, I played with I played with them all, and and it would have been an amazing thing. But uh, John left us five before my contract party, and then they were chasing after me for information because I was the weed girl to the stars. And. Now that there's such things of a statute of limitations, I can talk about this stuff, but, oh, man.
1: So, Lynette, let's jump in there. What was it like selling weed in West Hollywood in the uh, the late 1970s? I mean, if you are a weed dealer to the stars, you must have uh, had a lot of other experiences outside of just, like, selling the Belushi and the Blues Brothers. Um, what was it like, kind of, in that period?
2: I had, I had, I was, protect, I had a worked out a deal, and I had uh, protection. I had a, a bodyguard at a, a close distance. And I was allowed to sell because of the organization. I was allowed to sell at the Rainbow, the Roxy, the Whiskey, the Starwood, the Troubadour, and the Disco Joint.
0: What year are we talking here, Lynette?
2: 1979 to 1982. So I started selling, actually, I started selling weed in West Hollywood in 1978. I went there um, as a union musician, and I had studio gigs, but that wasn't really cutting it. And um, I um, started selling weed on the side Then I started Because I had the best weed in town so I'm from Northern California Then I got discovered by my friends at the Rainbow And they hooked me up with all the stars Because I had the best weed in town As I still do <laughs> yeah. And I'm a real good singer And I was a studio, classically trained studio musician So um, I started getting more gigs But then I met John and everything changed And then... Um, I met everybody, and everybody loved my weed. And then he left us, and they blamed me for a while, and then the, the real girl went off to Canada, and then they wanted to investigate me, and they wanted me to rat out the Blues Brothers and the, and all the other bands. Like, so, Motley Crew would be fans of my weed, you know? <laughs> This is when it was really dangerous, but I had protection, and I was West Hollywood, and I was a nice girl they could sing, and... I was all cute and everything. I just slid right in, slid right out, I was very discreet. You know. It was it was spy versus spy stuff. You had to have plans. You had to have protection. You had to keep close track. You had to check in, and uh, not carry too much money. But I was safe, relatively safe, until John died, and then all bets were off. And uh, there was riots in front of the Rainbow because they wanted to get me and question me had something to do with hard drugs, which I did not. <laughs> I had to leave town. And, and I left town for 25 years. I never went back to West Hollywood, because it was like, they're going to lynch me for something I didn't do?
0: You know?
2: I said, I screw rock and roll! And,
0: um, Wasn't uh, uh, Robin Williams with John Belushi that night? Wasn't those all the stories I remember reading about? You know, I, I, with all due respect to you, I think it's kind of nice. I,
2: I, I was supposed to meet him that night with the weed, and here's the critical part that I had to, like, work this out in my head. John sent me up to Northern California to get some weed because I was out of weed and so was everybody else. It was dry in West Hollywood. And I apparently I was followed by an agent of D.E. E. out of West Hollywood. And uh, my guy, I went to go score the pot and he was getting busted and I evaded arrest. And I had to, uh, I had to uh, hide. And so uh, I, I hid that night and when I called in that night, I called down to my manager who called to John and said well, Lynette can't make it, her guy got busted. And so uh, apparently he owned that night because he didn't have any cannabis. And uh, by the time I had replaced the, the stash and could head back to Hollywood the next morning, he was gone, and everybody was looking for me because I was supposed to be there that night. So I... I, I this was his fault. It's not my fault. A lot of people thought they sh- could have saved him. Right. He sent me to get cannabis to get him off the hardship. And... Uh, I didn't make it back in time. And so, uh, I had to work this out a lot in my head, you know? And there's a lot of other people that were supposed to get him that night, but didn't. Apparently, I'm not the only one. But he did send me to go get some marijuana, and he needed it. And uh, those, the, the drug war is the one who killed John. If, if John had, had had the cannabis that I had set aside from up north, I'd drive all the way up north to get it, I'd the best in it, best in the world, he would have survived. He would have lived. He would be still here with us. I would have gone and we would have done the movie we were going to do. We were going to travel the world and sing together and everything. So I never wanted to do anything with rock and roll ever again because being at the very top of the heap and then all of a sudden being the scapegoat for everyone, I uh, went back to college. I mean, I went back to college got my little degree and I played in a classical orchestra, so I'm a very good piano player, also. And I played in the orchestra for 20 years, and I kicked a 50 piece for 20 years. And started playing reggae music, because I was a little bored with all the classical. And I started playing reggae music, seriously, as a hobby. <laughs> and I didn't go back to the blues until uh, 2007. And uh, then I started doing rock and roll again, and uh, I got... Rock and roll. I'm a songwriter too. I, I did a lot of jingles and stuff in Hollywood in the old days. But uh, I can uh, write a good tune. I got a lot of tunes. And so the Blues Champions is my homage to uh, to my former life with the Blues Brothers, briefly. And uh, also the funk I grew up with in East Bay. The reggae I played for you know, 10 years when I was playing rock and roll. And uh, I think that I have a really wonderful band and a really great act. And that's why we're also combining it with the last Prisoner Project, because there's 40,000 pot prisoners. I went to jail for pot. I know how this sucks. I got beat up, and I lost the house I was renting, and all my stuff got trashed over a big bag of pot, because I always had pot. I always still do have pot. It didn't stop me, but it slowed me down, and it pissed me off.
1: You got popped in 1991, right? So, uh, And you did a, a stint in, in uh, jail for a while from that. And, and coming out of that is kind of how you end up getting uh, hooked up with Dennis Perrone and the uh, sort of the pre-Prop 215 rage, right? So give me a sense of, um, you know, look, I think we, we've all been victims of uh, overzealous prosecutors, but uh, when you came out of that uh, situation... You know, meeting Dennis. You know, this is pre-prop two fifteen. This is just kind of when the AIDS epidemic was uh, was hitting pretty hard, and people were talking about legalization of uh, of medicinal cannabis. And you jumped right on that train. So, give me a sense. I mean, back then there was a, a handful, like you, Valerie Correll, Dennis. You know, and there, there weren't many that were uh, were getting it done. So, I'd love to hear about that era. You
2: bet, you bet. I got set up by a guy because I wouldn't sleep with him, which is what happens. The rats and the bullies were running the drug war. And uh, they came in and apparently they told me I was heavily armed, which my heavy, my heavy arms was my pistol, <laughs> and, and, and a rifle. That, you know, I, I could hit the side of a barn with a, with a shotgun. I had a shotgun under my bed, unloaded and broken open. So they came in and they tore up my house and beat me up and almost killed my dog. And they found um, a five-pound bag of pot. They planted the hard drugs. And they said I had I had 20 pounds and I was going to go to jail unless I turned everybody in. So I didn't turn anybody in, of course. So I went to jail. At the time, I got 80. I got 120 days, and I did 80 days for good behavior. And uh, I came out just pissed off as hell. I, I had I knew I was going to jail. I was going to court, and that's when I met Jack Hare. And Jack sent me to Pebbles Trivet, who sent me to Dennis before knowing I was going to go to jail. So I'm i i uh, Dennis met me. and I met him at the House of Flowers, and I said, "Yeah, I'm going to jail for pot. It really sucks." <laughs> he says, "Gee, well, when are you going to go?" I said, "I'm Several months from now. They're still processing, as they do." Said, well, do you want to work in the meantime? So I actually started to work before I went to jail, knowing I was going to jail in the fast, in the first cannabis club in all Street, on uh, in Church Street, there in the Castro. And when I met Dennis at the House of Flowers event on that fateful day in April of 1991, I'd actually met Jack in uh, December of 1990 at a speech and I was going to go to jail. So I ran up to Jack and said, man, I'm gonna to go to jail for pots really sucks. He gave me his book and I read the book and that's how I ended up meeting everybody because I called him up and said, what can I do to help? I met Dennis and I walked into crisis of the drug war and AIDS and and a medical crisis, a humanity crisis, people dying in the streets, and and the and the drug war sending them to jail when they were dying and they'd have a joint or two or a roach. They'd haul these poor sick people off and my mother was a Quaker and she taught us well. And uh and uh I had to help and I was gonna to go to jail anyway, <laughs> you know. What are they gonna do? Call me a felon? I started working for Dennis before I went to jail for partying. Because I'm, an, I'm a good, nice kid, you know, and I, I'm not too scary. They put me as an intake counselor. So I uh, brought people into the club. They had to prove they had AIDS or cancer or something to join the club. So many people. I personally did about 6,000 intakes for Dennis. It was the most incredible crisis of health and humanity and sorrow and 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 cops and and jails and it was just astonishing and it was stunning and all i could do was help because hey i already got busted you know what are you gonna do bust me again okay good let's go to trial that's what dennis said we need a trial we need a jury of our peers So that's how I started working for Dennis, and then I worked for him for about six months, seven months, and then I had to go to jail. And uh, I, didn't, I was supposed to be for 120 days, but, uh, man, I uh, did 80 days. I, I started playing, key, I played keyboards, so I played keyboards in church and, they, and had the girls singing in church. Okay, and, uh, and that's how I got out of jail early, was by singing and playing my way out of jail early for good behavior. And, but I was pissed. And I, Dennis had let me call him collect, and I K-Mod radio, had me on the radio from jail talking about the, the drug war and stuff. and The fact that you know, there's this big jail, and there was only three white girls in there. It was me, the hooker, and the check kiter, and then everyone else was black and brown. And that's the, the general proportion of all, of all the women's jails, you know. I was quite
1: eye-opening. So that with most people, when they get out of jail, the first thing that they think about is, you know, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I can to sort of stay away from jail. When you got out, the first thing you did was run to, you know, Jack Carrar, Dennis Perrone, start working with, you know, the first pot shop in uh, in San Francisco, and then ultimately, you know, you opened your own uh, not soon after. And I got to say, I'm super impressed because that was during the time when, like, Melinda Haig and some other overzealous prosecutors uh, from the federal side, we're really coming after um, anyone that was in cannabis. So, like, to, to put yourself out there after already like, serving a stint in the joint, you know, kind of like, what were you thinking that you were like, I, I want to get back in this thing and I want to get back in the fight instead of saying, okay, I learned my lesson. I'm staying away from weed for a while, uh, just going headlong right back into it?
2: I read Jack Hare's book, The Truth Had Set Me Free. I wasn't crazy. I was right. Marijuana is good. Or was in medicine. I have I have PTSD from being chased around Hollywood over John Belushi's death. Those suckers wanted me to give up everybody in Hollywood, so I disappeared. I went to the Hell's Angels. They hid me out because I was an important person in the underground. <laughs> I was their wee girl, too. <laughs> I needed pot, and, and I was told by my family, my dad, who's a federal agent, that I, that I was evil. And um, I'm, well, I'm not evil. I'm not evil. Jack look here's the proof Jack has. And then Jack sent me to Dennis knowing the truth that I was right. And 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 then I went to jail even though I was right, which is really wrong. <laughs> I got out pissed. And I know the truth. You know, and, and the truth is what's gonna set us free. And the only way that I could get back at those suckers for beating me up and ruining my life and stopping me from singing and chasing me around was to fight. You know? And um I mean, it helps that my grandfather was a pirate captain, I guess. (laughs) I was hurt, and I had nothing to lose. And I had everything to gain.
0: I've got two questions for you. The first one I want to know is how long you were in for, and the second one is what percentage of your fellow prisoners were in for marijuana?
2: I was the only pot prisoner at the time. This is in 1991. Um, everybody else was in there for, uh, dope, any kind of dope except pot. And also, they, I was considered a big pot bust, so, um, I was in a. I, I did, I had a hundred and twenty day sentence, uh, which would have been a lot, they wanted to go for two years. But I, got, I had a pretty good lawyer, I guess, about got 120 days. So, so I did 80, and they let me out early because of uh, my work with the church music and the girls' choir and stuff. And that was enough to piss me off. I mean, it was, I felt so violated all the time. There's no privacy. They could search you any time you want. Any, any part of you, they could search you at any time. You know? You um, know? I didn't deserve that. And uh, no one else who was in jail for pop deserves to be in jail for pop. Nobody. And I guess I have something called righteous indignation, my mom told me about it. (laughs) Because in a Quaker, you're not supposed to be mad or hate anybody, but you can have righteous indignation. And uh, I think that is my fuel. That's my gasoline.
0: And in your case, what that did was that motivated you to get into a legal battle that was generational right it lasted nineteen years and this was what for your right to, to operate a, uh, a a marijuana dispensary
2: Yes this is, this is some years later actually many years later because I, I got out of jail and I was very consciously indignant I went back right to work for Dennis on the front lines because they needed somebody trustworthy to be in there working with the patients. I got, I had a prescription for marinol from Dr. Todd Niria which got me out of the urine testing. And so I was able to work around marijuana and use marijuana, even when I was on a very strict probation. And because I moved out of the East Bay into Marin, um, they put me on a postcard for probation at the time. This was 1991, 1992, And they finally let me go because I was just a little white girl with pot, you know. I'm sure that if I was another person of color, it would have been a much different story. But I also knew that I, I it was important for us to win, so that nothing like that would happen to anybody else like what happened to me. So I'm a good kid. I started working with Dennis again. Then we started working on 215. Then I got off probation, and Dennis made me be the multi- major media spokesperson in the 1993-94. Um, we started lobbying for this me- medical marijuana, and then uh, the 215 campaign started to happen. Because uh, I helped get a much money from them, from uh, George Soros, Michelle Aldrich, and I all came together because I worked really hard and I put pieces of things together I was very helpful to Dennis and I was part of the inner in core. Dennis and I worked together every day for five years. It was like basically surfing on his waves. <laughs> such a genius, you know. And I come up with good ideas, and, you know, I'd come up and, and the ideas would come together. So then after we won two fifteen, 15 we won two fifteen. 15 I had a call from the police chief of Fairfax, who congratulated me, and said, Lynette, now that I understand what this is, and I want to tell you, I have officers down. They have cancer. They have AIDS. We can't talk about it. This is 1996, you know? He said, do you know what a use permit is, lady? Have you ever applied for a business license? I said, no, sir. He says, that's what you need. So it was a cop who's had sick people that he loved because the one who said, you should do this, Lynette. In fact, here's some cop rules that I had to throw all out, 150 of them. Like, no, 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 no. You can't look at our medical records. So I wrote the whole thing, I rewrote the whole thing, inspired by Chief Anderson, and that's what the first license was ever in all history. I was in Time magazine about this and uh, I was granted a license to legally sell pot with all these checks and balances and inspections and blah 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 but it worked to everybody's satisfaction everybody was happy with our system and then I got sued by President Clinton in 1998 and the big marshals came you know the guys they were like 10 feet tall with heavy SWAT gear and everything and me a piece of paper not part over my doorstep and we had to go to court and there was all the you know, 150 of these SWAT team guys with me and Dennis and it was six of us that got sued Dennis dropped out two others dropped out and then it was uh, me, Oakland, and Ukiah then uh, Ukiah, she passed away from her illness and Jeff went in first and he lost and then it was me and I had the only real license my lawyer and I talked about this many times because we were the test case we had the only license in the nation the only license in the world to sell pot legally that was effective and honest and clear and worked to everybody's satisfaction so i was the biggest danger in the drug war so they persecuted me and prosecuted me and chased me around by agents again trying to get information again and uh, they, they did everything possible to scare me, to come up to me, to, to haunt my town, haunt the county we're in. That's why there's no other dispensaries. We a DEA agents here for 20 years bothering people. And um, they took my Social Security away. They, uh, they, I bankrupted. I lost my club. Finally, after 15 years, Obama's people took the landlord's land. They cheated because they couldn't beat me in court. We have the Constitution, you know, and we have state's rights. And we also have compassion. So uh, when they took the landlord's land, then I had to move, and I had, and they were following me like crazy. They had, they had agents posted outside my house for 24 hours for years. I couldn't go anywhere without an agent. I couldn't go to do a speech. I couldn't go to a festival. I couldn't sing. I couldn't do anything because those guys were following me. They were writing down their people's information, and license plates, and taking pictures, and, oh, God. So, um, after uh, I lost my club, I had to rent out my house, and I fled to my secret apartment in West Hollywood, where I was a small fish in a very big pond, and then I had relative quiet there. The uh, different jurisdiction, we stopped at Bakersfield, because the Ninth Circuit jurisdiction ends at Bakersfield, and I was free. South into the third district where I had never committed any marijuana crimes, so they couldn't get a warrant for me. <laughs> and that's where I met Sister Lau, who's one of the founders of the Wu tang Clan, and, and he protected me. And I was with him for six years until so he died of cancer. So I had a whole other musical family. And then uh, I, 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 I came home and I beat the feds, I beat them. We beat them after 19 years. Because we were the test case to stop the entire cannabis industry. There was no way that I would stop until they either put me in jail or I died. You know? Because we were the test case to stop the entire industry and we could not stop and we could not lose and uh, and by the and also I disappeared from the media this is part of the strategy because I'm a strategist because I didn't want anyone to be scared I wanted them to open up their clubs I wanted them to negotiate with, with the town I wanted the sheriff to accept the fact that they were selling pot for medical purposes legally even though there was this case going on and I don't know about the feds but when, because of my case they couldn't go bust anybody else we preserved the industry while fighting for our lives this whole time and then we won. And we won for the landlords, too. And uh, that was because Trump came in. And remember when Trump fired all the prosecutors? <laughs> he fired my prosecutor of 20 years. And then because the enemy of my enemies, my friend Obama, had come after me, he he let the whole case go. And my landlord was able to rent to me. And I moved back into this space right here, the same space where I've been at 25 years now. Minus five years. Five years without the blood.
1: So that sounds like you've got some good 420 uh, action going on in the background. Uh, so the audience, if you guys can hear any of the music while Lynette's speaking, this isn't just, um, sort of background music as she tells the story of her life. It's uh, music that's happening real time at her dispensary up in Fairfax, um, to celebrate the 420 uh, holiday. And so super cool that you've got people out there doing that. It actually is a, a really nice way to, to listen to you. Um, as, as you're speaking, it kind of provides just like background music for you. So may we all be so lucky to have theme music. Um, I was going to jump in and ask you, you know, you, you had said that, uh, you know, there have been some dispensers, obviously, that came after you that are still in the very early days of the uh, of the industry. Uh, Steve D'Angelo, Etienne Fontaine, uh, you know, some of the stuff that was happening in Santa Cruz would you think as you you were getting prosecuted and you're watching these other guys now starting to open up were you, were you pretty pleased that like uh you had company of other people that were saying we're gonna take on the drug war as well or were you um uh worried about kind of like what the direction was and worried for their safety I mean again like the anyone that's pre two thousand uh opening dispensaries in California I look at it as you know kind of a real pioneer
2: I wanted more dispensaries to open with regulation because there's safety in numbers. And I thought that, as it turned out after so many years, we went, in, we went back into court in 2015. I was shut down for four years, four and a half years at that point. And there was thousands of licensed dispensaries across the nation in 2015. There was a lot of progress being made. My wonderful attorney, Greg Anton Crawford, there are thousands of licensed dispensaries in America today. This prosecution of my client has not worked. Why can't she go back to work now that they removed the budget to prosecute medical marijuana, which is how we want And the prosecution from Washington, D.C. gets up and says, we don't care what anyone else has. She just can't have a dispensary in open court. And my judge lost his mind, jumped up, and pointed the finger of shame at the prosecution. Do you remember equal justice under the law? And that's exactly what I'd hoped for, is that they were treating me unfairly, but everybody else was going forward. And so that actually helped me win my case for everybody throughout this whole process. Because equal justice, you know, and I could not be treated unfairly anymore.
0: Absolutely. And, And Lynette, I want to know how you feel going from that moment in time when you know your first winning in the court is saying you can go ahead and you can do this. And you know now we read in the newspaper recently uh, that it's projected that marijuana is going to add 99 billion dollars to the. US economy in 2022, including both sales and additional economic impact of those retail sales. And that by 2026, it's projected to add $157 billion into our economy. That's quite a leap forward from when you were just trying to get your first legal dispensary open and operating.
2: You know that all the licensed dispensaries are my godchildren. Those are my babies. You know, every single one. If you went through the hassle of the paperwork and you, and you are trying to bring us, bring us and cannabis into the light, and every parent knows that when you'll you fight to death for your baby. And the dispensary, the licensed dispensary is my baby, and I fought and fought and fought because that was my baby. And that is, is as founder of the industry, I'm very pleased to see, despite all the ridiculous over-excessive rules and everything, we are finally being assimilated into society. And we're not so evil anymore. And as people realize that the sky isn't going to fall... <laughs> And that we're of benefit to society and we're not criminals and, and they set our 40,000 prisoners free because they're nonviolent, violent and, and we need them back, you know? And that is the social change that I envisioned when I first met Jack and, and Dennis years ago. And that's also the vision I think that my quick mother instilled with us, with us in, in, as children, is the world should be peaceful and happy. And to me, that's what cannabis
0: brings is peace and love. Well, Lynette, let me ask you this question then. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on not just the growth of the uh, marijuana industry, but the growth of some of these companies you know, that, are, that are referred to as multi-state operators that are slowly but surely kind of you know, creeping in and taking more and more control of the marijuana markets. Do you see that as a positive or a negative?
2: When you go into a liquor store, you can get a cheap bottle of Gallo or a $150 bottle of Mums. Do you see mums going out of business? No. Grow the mums a pot. What I've found, because we're in California and we're spoiled and we know what real pot is, that commercial junk isn't selling. And um, I think I'm going to see cannabis tourism. I think we're going to be, finally, we can't do farm to table. You know, I think eventually they're gonna drop that silly law and allow people to go to the farm and go have ta- tasting, just like wine tasting. And um, I think that the California dispensers will be blessed with excellent organic pot because it's the best in the world. And the, a lot of the big companies have tried to c- come in and take over already packed their bags and left Northern California because the black market has taken over and uh, we're not gonna buy any of their junk. We're not going to buy poison-infested, commercially poorly-grown pot. So we know better. And when we do have federal legalization, we'll be able to export the best pot in the world, and then everybody else will know better, too. So you all just enjoy your money while you can make it, because it's going to
0: change. Well, Lynette, let me ask you about that, too. Because, you know, when... um in 2018 in the farm bill, when CBD and and hemp became legal, right? They they said, we're taking it off the controlled substance list. And now it's up to the states to decide what they want to do. And one of the things they said is that no state can interfere with interstate commerce. However, a state has a right to say, you can't sell it in my state. You're allowed to drive through my state, but I'm saying you can't sell it here. So I I agree with everything you just said. By the way, in terms of the quality of commercial marijuana versus what you can get from California, I was just out in California at the end of February, and it always reminds me just how much better life is for that kind of stuff out on the West Coast. And we, however, you know, I I what I'm suspecting is going to happen is that a lot of states like let's say Illinois may start enacting, you know, protectionist laws like some states do with wine manufacturers, right, to say that unless the marijuana is grown in this state, you can't sell it in this state because otherwise California will just, I mean, it'll take over the entire country, which would be fine with me. But may not be fine like with some of the other people out there, you know, the Crescos of the world who are trying to maintain their own, you know, their own businesses and everything, right? So, you know, th- that's ultimately where I'm really wondering whether there will really be a fully free open market so that I can walk into a dispensary in Illinois and purchase California-grown marijuana. No
2: matter what is... Very important to make marijuana, cannabis and pot and marijuana, whatever you want to call it, a normal part of society. And we've got to get over 100 years of, of propaganda and hatred and jail and, and drug war. So eventually, what, what, if you look at what they did with alcohol, they did the same thing, let the states do it. And so there was, you know, there was dry states until the 80s. But eventually, everybody has alcohol. You know, there's still weird restrictions here and there in certain areas, whatever, time or you know. So if a state really doesn't want pot, then they're gonna they're gonna boost the black market and they want to keep the keep the illegal market going. Then they can ban pot there, but it doesn't work. And as more people have pot in their life and they use it, and, they, and the sky doesn't fall, like I said before, we can become normal as a part of human society, which it should be. That's where it belongs. It's a normal thing, you know, and and I, it's going to take a while, but some pot's better than no
0: pot. Well, let me ask you about this, Lynette. What are your thoughts on if there is federal legalization, right, so they say, good, we're going legal, what will that mean to smaller marijuana producers when, like, the R.J. Reynolds or the Scott's Grass Seed Company and... All of these big, huge multinational corporations that are just chomping at the bit to jump in as soon as their lawyers say it's okay, which will probably happen when we get, you know, we get it legal on a federal basis. Are you, based on where you are and what you do, are you concerned about these big companies coming in and trying to really take over the market?
2: Lots and lots of money for this little place in anticipation of final federal legalization which I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to see federal legalization for several more years. It's not, with, I mean, I voted for Biden, but he hates pot. I don't carry corporate pot. I don't carry it. We don't want it. We don't. They don't buy it. The quality that they've been able to come up with with their big money has been crap. <laughs> you know? I haven't seen any corporate pot that was decent. They don't know what they're doing.
0: No, but you're a very, very small... You're a very small segmented market, right? I mean, people in your part of the world, people in your part of the world only want to get, you know, the, the good quality stuff. But you know, look, in 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 Illinois, they're selling one and a half billion dollars worth of this commercially grown marijuana that that I agree isn't particularly great. But people here are like, oh, I can buy it legally, and they do. So, you know, that's my concern, right? It's like, look, people can buy fancy beer; they can buy Budweiser, and, and people buy a hell of a lot of Budweiser beer, um, which is fine for the people who like it, but then it, it necessarily forces the creation of you know, what will be the equivalent of micro breweries in the marijuana side to really provide that, that special high quality strains for the connoisseurs who are looking for something better than the general stuff.
2: Right. Some marijuana is better than no marijuana. And that is, in Illinois, I'm sure that the the quality that they were able to get in the black market was inconsistent and hard to get. And uh, I, I'm, I am can not be. Northern California will not be taken over by corporate interests. But in places where they don't know how to grow pot and they haven't had access to good, you know, pot, and now there's a, a, an availability. Even though it's not the best, at least they can get some pot. And uh, I, like microbreweries, I think that's going to, you know, when people, when it's a normal thing and people are tired of the corporate pot, they're going to look for the microbreweries, the, the, uh, you know, the the real stuff. And then when we we can export the real stuff out of Northern California and also teach people how to grow properly, this is going to take a dent in the corporate profits, which has always been the enemy, is the dent in the corporate profits. We will survive no matter what.
1: So Lynette, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, We could listen to you for hours. I mean, the war stories you have to tell about the early days of the cannabis industry and kind of your philosophy on how it's evolving. um, Really, really cool to have like a real industry warrior here. And and for all the people out there that don't understand what Lynette has done for all of us to, um, to allow us to have the industry that we do today, when she says that we're all of her godchildren, I mean, take that to heart. Because without, you know, a handful of people, I mean, I joined the the cause, you know, 30 years ago. She was here long before I was and long before most people I knew were, which means that, you know, if I thought that I made an impact in the early days, it's only because people like her were out there, you know, making a real impact, doing real things, getting 215 passed, that we have any industry today. So for everything you've done, you know, thank you so much from the bottom of all of our hearts Um and, and please keep doing it. Keep fighting the good fight. And please come back and talk to us again. We'd love to hear it um, again. If we weren't having some technical issues, we would definitely um, keep you longer. But go enjoy the 420 holiday. Go enjoy the music. And thanks so much for everything.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thank uh, You guys are great. Anytime we can, we can uh, do some more talking, and let's do it. Thank you so much and, and love to everyone.
1: So, hey, let's jump back in some Grateful Dead. I mean, that was amazing. It's so cool to have Lynette on the show with us. Um, But now let's get back in and let's see if we can't figure out uh, a way to um, really talk about uh, the rest of that run from the Ark in Boston and... uh, you know, a great time to do it is uh, thinking about sort of the 420 holiday and thinking about the early days of uh, of the Grateful Dead. So we've talked about the early days of the of the weed world. Now let's talk about, you know, sort of Primal Dead again.
0: Yeah, we've, we've we've been off of Primal Dead for a little while. This is a great run of shows. Uh, they really took a liking to it, as you pointed out, so much so that uh, 6970 is the the only year in their existence when they did their New Year's shows outside of the Bay Area uh, and they did it at the Ark in Boston uh it, it's great stuff and you know i think the dead always had a fondness for the east coast certainly new york city was like a second home for them but i think that they had a, a special feeling for the new england area too and you know there's just a number of great shows uh from the dead from the boston uh area and uh, other great stuff like that but this is just one example of it and you know 1969 was a fun time uh they were just really you know being still introduced to the world and, and to the folks on the east coast and you know this is right in the heart of, of the whole primal dead and the um uh you know the 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 suite we always talk about with dark star saint Stephen the 11 and love light and uh you know they come through here and uh in fact uh, that first night out of that foxy lady jam they really dive right into that whole uh a little space and then right into the uh, the, the 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 suite of songs there that uh they were showcasing and What I love about them is that uh, it's a great time for Dark Star, in my opinion. And the reason is because sometimes I think, you know, 30 to 40-minute Dark Stars, while they can be, you know, uh, entertaining under the right circumstances, can also kind of, like, be too long. And especially if you're at a party and you're playing music and all of a sudden you get into a Dark Star and people, how long will they sit around and listen to it? But in 69, their Dark Stars were running about 20 minutes in length total. And this is one of them as well. And They've got that very unique sound at the very beginning that sounds like they're using one of those little uh, things, wooden things we used to use in in band class in in grade school with the the wood grinding off of each other and a little percussion going on there. And it's a very distinctive sound at the start of the Dark Stars from that era. And, you know, they they dive through. I mean, you know, St. Stephen, all of this stuff is also new for them. And this is the peak time for them playing the 11 because by 1970... Uh, really, this suite of songs was gone. So, um, I, it's great to listen to. Fantastic choice today.
1: Yeah, and speaking of the eleven, you know, I kind of wanted to listen to a little bit of the one from the second night, which had another dark star saying, "Stephen the eleven love light," and it really gives a juxtaposition because you know I started off by saying the foxy lady wasn't that hot, and this is kind of you know Garcia. You know, paying homage to Hendrix, but didn't necessarily have the chops. But then you listen to what he does in the eleven, and you go, "Yeah, you know what? He was actually that good even then. He was just playing music that wasn't his own." So you know, damn, maybe queue up a little bit of the eleven from four twenty two sixty nine, which is the second night of that run. Mm-hmm.
0: Such a great song, and um, I remember Mickey talking about it and saying how much he loved the Deadheads because they could clap to the to the very strange time pattern, you know, that they play the eleven in, which is where it gets its name from, and uh, it, it, it's such a wonderful tune, um, but it's 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 a tune that has been remarkably elusive in terms of sounding like itself when played in any of these post-Dead compilations. And that's because it re- really requires the two guitarists playing off of each other really well and the vocals uh, when they're singing really, you know, filling in right on top of each other. And when Dead & Company does it, Bobby tries to do it by himself and that just doesn't work. But I've said it before and I'll say it Again, I think J-Rad does a cover of the 11 that's almost as good as the Dead's because they've got that guitar playing. They've got those vocals down. And uh, that's one of the things that drew me to J-Rad originally was how well they played the 11. Um, And this is a great version too, of course. So uh, you can never really go wrong. And the the clip you you pulled is one of my favorite parts of the song, that whole musical crescendo where they just kind of build up and build up. And it's great stuff
1: because normally when I think about the 11 I think about the drum signature which is you know really the five beats six beats where it's like the den but in this case it's it's really the the Garcia playing the 11 where it's super pronounced where you can actually hear every note of his playing the 11 beats in the four in the four time so you know when you think about like a really technical difficult time signature like what drew me to the 11 when I was young was, just how difficult it must be to be able to get that, um, that 11-4 time just in general. And I just thought it was just amazing that these guys were able to do it and do it in such a creative way. But it was really like the, the part that I picked was purely because it's straight Garcia playing the
0: eleven four time. Right. I, I, there's no doubt, you know, and, and, and I guess that just makes the Deadheads, you know, special special and musically gifted that they can, you know, literally find a way to keep up with that beat. But it's, it, 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 it's really special, and it, it comes from a great period in that time And um, I think that uh, uh, the other song that you have tagged uh, for us today, Rob, uh, to listen to really quickly here is also another song that was really getting a lot of play during that time. And unfortunately, uh, really fell off the table afterwards because uh, Alligator is one of those songs that um, they could play just as a tune, kind of like they do in this version or like they did on the um, uh, uh, Fillmore West uh, albums shows uh, they take alligator and they use it as the jumping off point for really really long jams into caution and then other stuff typically more towards the end of the show but it's such a great tune right because it was it was one of the first new tunes they wrote after uh the original album came out and you know it's how we got the other one because it was the other one it was on the other side of alligator when they were going to release it and it's just a fun tune you know and, and maybe it maybe it had to die with pig pen because it was you know he, he really made it special but uh Um, it's fantastic Um, Dan can you play that for us
1: See, one of the things I love about this, Larry, is not only is it, you know, Pig kind of at its peak, but it's also, like, one of the rare times where you get full three-night runs that are full soundboards in 1969. You know, most of the tapes you're getting from them have been cleaned up but a lot of more audiences, but to have a run where it's all boards, where you can actually hear each individual player really well, not only is it Pig, it's also Tom Constantin. So it's, you know, kind of the full lineup of that Primal Dead period, um... But, yeah, I love the alligators. I love the alligators during that period, and you know, really wish that um, that we'd gotten more of sort of the classic pig blues over the next couple of years. Um, but I'd say 69 for me was you know about at the peak of, of where he was just absolutely crushing it, and then to have it mixed in with like a Mountains of the Moon at the same time uh, and some of the
0: other, you know, Constantin stuff, uh, very, very cool. I, indeed, and what I love about alligator, and, and, and I, I want to make sure I say this right chronologically, is that uh, Cosmic Charlie really has, you know, a couple of elements from Alligator built into it. You know, Caught Up Waiting on a Windy Day, which they kind of sing over and over a little bit in Alligator. And, you know, those are all lines that ultimately make their way into Cosmic Charlie. And I really, really love that, how, um, you know, one song kind of builds on the other or builds off of the other. And, you know, it's like if you listen carefully, you can find that thread that, that takes you from, you know, and, and Cosmic Charlie was coming out right around the same time too, so it wasn't like it was something done over a number of years. Uh, but you know, they obviously had a riff that they really liked, and they you know they they used it liberally.
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, that that alligator we listened to was actually from the 23rd of April. The, the first thing we listened to is from the 21st. The second uh, clip we listened to was from the 22nd, but the alligator was from the 23rd. So I tried to pick a little bit from uh, from each night, but the entire three night run is is absolutely worthy of listening
0: to. Yeah. I, that's typically the case, you know, with them when they have these kind of runs and, you know, you could you could flip right through them. And a few times they were kind enough to release, you know, three-night runs in box sets, a couple of box sets from Winterland in 73 and 77 with complete three-night runs, um, you know, a few others. But, uh, uh, you know, maybe that'll be something down the road for them to go back and consider doing because it really is uh, such great music from them at, at, at such a great period of time, you uh, you know, that it's really fun to listen to and um, uh, they do such a good job with it here. Um, One thing that I want to just note uh, before we just to jump out of this show for one second and then we can jump back into it um, is we keep, uh, you know, kind of talking and teasing about Europe 72. I think next week we're going to finally dive in uh, with the uh, show from Rotterdam, which was Dick Lovatla's favorite show of the entire tour. So that seems appropriate to be a show for us to feature and talk about. Uh, but just for the uh, the heads who are out there listening and are and are interested or curious, uh, this now marks the um, uh, 20th, or excuse me, 50th anniversary of the show that they played in Frankfurt, West Germany at a uh, place called the Jarhundert Hall, which I'm sure I'm not pronouncing correctly, but which means uh, literally 100-year hall or centennial hall, and in 1995, one of the very first live from one of the very first live releases the Dead put out from their vault that wasn't part of their From the Vault or Dick's Pick series was part of this show. It was a, a disc called Hundred Year Hall, and uh, it had um, uh, a, a, a good portion of this show on it. It was the first release that the Dead put out after Jerry's death. And, um, you know, kind of, I guess chronologically, kind of came out between Dick's Picks One and Dick's Picks Two and Dick's Picks Three. But it was, I I love that when that came out, too. So uh, for people who are keeping an eye on Europe 72, go find Hundred Year Hauler if you want the full show um, from April 26, 72 in Frankfurt. And uh, you'll really, really like that a lot. We'll dive into 50 next week because uh, you'll find. Uh, on our show that it's not just the Grateful Dead who are celebrating their 50th anniversaries or birthdays next week. And we'll just leave it mysterious like that until uh, until we tune on with you guys. But uh, back to this show, you know, and what's great about it, and I guess we'll get to in a minute when we do the outro, which we're running out of time here very soon, um, you know, is we bid you good night. And we've talked about that, too, that that was a tune that disappeared from the playlist for a really long time. Uh, they brought it back at Alpine Valley in 1989, and then eventually they went ahead and played it at uh, uh, Hampton that year as part of the Warlock show, and, uh, and and brought it back. And that's that's always a fun tune to hear, and uh, you know a rare chance to really get to hear the boys, you know, do a little acapella harmonizing on stage. Yeah, I
1: agree. And uh, I love you, Biddy We bid you good night. It's one of those things that you know when they brought it back, um, I was pretty thrilled. And Ten sixteen eighty nine is. You know, for me, the one from Brendan Bernardina that that really stands out. Uh, and there's a great video of it. So anyone that wants to see what the boys look like doing acapella, uh, it's definitely worth finding the video of that one because it's a, a really, really fun version to listen to.
0: And that's also was released by them... Uh, as Nightfall of Diamonds. That's a, that's a, a dead release. The entire show. It's Bobby's birthday on October sixteenth. That's yeah, his forty sixth birthday. Right. He comes out just with a blazing Picasso Moon, and the whole show just takes off from there. It's really it's it's great to, it's a great show to listen to.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, listen. Uh, always a pleasure to do this with you. And you know, I, I had a lot of fun despite the technical issues we were having with Lynette. Um, hopefully, it, it comes out cleaner to the audience than uh, than it was for us as we were recording it today. But you know, an amazing, amazing guest to have on, and you know, for anyone that's interested, take a look at her uh, her biography and take a look at what she's done. But you know, for me, I'm I'm always a student of history. Uh, so you know, I try to figure out the people that that made you know my life possible and what what I'm able to do, especially professionally. And I can tell you that you know, I don't think I mean this sincerely. I don't think any of us would have, would be here today doing what we're doing professionally but for uh, Lynette Shaw and the work that she put in to really take on the feds to take on Melinda Haig and may I go on the record saying, Go fuck yourself, Melinda Haig. Um, you know, a woman that did absolutely terrible damage to the early days of the cannabis industry. So uh, I'm pleased that she's she's gone and, you know, I'm devastated by the the what she did to people during her reign of terror in uh, in the Bay Area. So um, and thank you, you know, for, for the other folks that, that paved the way in those early days too. I mean, I think from 1991 to 1996, uh, as Prop 215 was getting passed, you know, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the people that are out there gathering signatures and to the people that funded the uh, the effort. Whether it was you know Ethan Nadelman and his crew, you know, that was funded by uh, by by Lynn Smith, which turned it eventually into the um, the Drug Policy Alliance. There's a, a handful of people that, that put their lives and their liberty on the line to make sure that we have a cannabis industry like we do today. And uh, whenever I get a chance to actually have a person like that you know, within our sphere to be able to have a chance to interview him, I jump at it because you know I think everyone needs to know the history of, of how we got there the same way we need to know like who the influential musicians were, you know, like why, why you know, Bach was influential on Phil Lesh. You know, these are the things that, that make it important for you to understand kind of the lineage of how you got to where you
0: are today uh you're absolutely right uh, she's she's really a unique and special person um with so many fascinating stories you know that bit about the blues brothers and, and being involved with them and you know being in so tight with uh with Belushi and everything she's really somebody who you know kind of was part of you know certainly for me and maybe a little bit for you too uh you know part of the uh the culture that we grew up in you know this the you know high school and college was all about Belushi and the blues brothers until he died and uh, how amazing, you know, all of that was. And, and, and you know, we, we love being uh, able to talk to somebody who's part of all that. And, you know, for me, I think, Rob, the other part about that that's, that's nice is every now and then we all just need a big refresher course of the people who really operated with true values. And, and I don't mean to, to besmirch anybody when I say this, but, you know, I think there's a lot of big corporations out there that are much more interested in the bottom line of what they do and they're a business and I can understand that. And maybe it maybe it's just, you know, being a a tad too naive to really believe that, you know, the cannabis industry could really be run as an industry by, you know, the really cool people who, you know, know what cannabis means to the people who use it and and keep it all good like that. But that's just not the way of the world. And and the latest example, which we're not going to have time to talk about today, but I'm going to throw it out there uh, because we are going to talk about it next week, uh, is this latest lawsuit that was just filed in Chicago the other day in federal court. And just as it looks like we're reaching a place where there's going to be dispensary licenses issued, um, a, uh, a public interest group uh, filed a lawsuit uh, alleging the existence of a Chicago marijuana cartel uh, that, you know, as alleged and reported in the newspaper, uh, includes the Wrigley family, uh, the Pritzker family. Uh, I've even seen that potentially, uh, uh, possibly U.S. Representative Bobby Rush is is being implicated. The Kovler family is being implicated. Um, Obviously, it's a lawsuit, and lawsuits can say whatever they want to say, and they're usually shielded by what we call the litigation privilege, meaning that you can't go back and sue a lawyer for putting stuff in a complaint that's not true if they're trying to prove a case. That doesn't mean that any of it is true, of course, and, and, and all of these defendants will have their day uh, to come in and file their answers or their motions to dismiss. And I and I look forward to seeing all of that and really want to wait a week to talk about it because it'll be interesting to see if any of these defendants have initial public comments to to come back with in response to it. But I just find it sad that we've reached a point where there's groups out there that, that even imagine... Uh, the possibility of the existence of such a cartel that such litigation is necessary. And for those who've been paying attention to what's going on in Illinois, uh, it's just another thorn in our side uh, as we attempt to finally you know, break free of kind of the monopolistic grip that for right now the, the medical people do have on the adult use market and get these other 150 licenses issued and get these new faces out there and, and have a real chance for competition and, and, and pricing and uh and all of that and um you know for us in, for us in Illinois it just kind of feels like a nightmare that's never ending what, what was supposed to be such a wonderful thing uh is has, has literally turned into a you know a nonstop battle uh as everybody competes for their share of the pie and um I can only hope that we can just wake up one day and say you know what screw this we're just going to be like Oklahoma you want a license take it you're in And, uh, you know, and really get this program off the ground. But that's my two cents worth for right now. Maybe we'll have more next week. Uh, But just felt compelled that when we're sitting here talking to somebody like Lynette. Uh, it's important to remember that, you know, you do get what you wish for. And as the industry grows and gets bigger, there are going to be people who are going to get larger and who are going to control a larger share of the market. It doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong. It just means that they've been able to grow and take larger shares of the market. But especially in an industry like marijuana and the types of people who pay attention to it, uh, those people who do, you know, reach for a larger share will inevitably come under greater scrutiny. um, and, And, you know, you have to be prepared to handle that kind of stuff. And I have no doubt that any of the people that have been named in this Chicago cartel uh, are more than uh, sufficient in being able to, to, to care for themselves and do what they need to do uh, to put their best face forward.
1: Yeah. Well said, Larry, really well said. Well, I'd love to have Lynette back some other time. If nothing else, just to talk to her for another half an hour about what it was like selling Hell's Angels uh, cannabis back in the seventies. Uh, if she could tell me stories about what it was like dealing with, um, you know, Terry the Tramp and, um, and uh, you know, some, some of the other guys. that are the Sonny Barger, the famous Oakland uh, Hells Angels, the East Bay Hells Angels. Sonny Barger, right. Uh, that would be entertaining enough, um, especially, you know, coming from someone that was probably in their late teens when it was happening. But,
0: you know, don't you think that if you're selling to the Hells Angels that you'd always err on the side of, like, three extra buds? Okay, this says it's le- I'm going to throw in a few. I'm, I'm not going to fuck around with this, you know? I, yeah, your bags are never light
1: when you're selling to the Hells Angels. Not at all. Not at all. Well, um, well, happy 420 to you, Larry, and happy 420 to you, America, and uh, to the rest of the world. And uh, you know, hopefully, everyone's having a great day. And again, I know you're not going to hear this until after the holidays over. But for all of you out there, I hope you had a great 420. And um, we're super stoked to to keep. Bringing you fun content and fun guests over the next uh, next couple months.
0: Absolutely, we've got a lot of good things lined up. There's a lot of great shows coming up. We're going to talk about, including next week. Please tune in uh, for this uh, for this show from Rotterdam uh, for the 50th anniversary of Europe '72 um it is you know dick lovatla's favorite it's a, it's just such a tremendous show we made reference to it last year but we didn't really talk about it but this year we're going to do a deep dive on that uh, we have some other great guests coming up down the road and uh, we appreciate everyone taking the time to tune in and listen to us once a week so on behalf of rob hunt from sunny california and larry michigan from overcast and rainy chicago thank you everyone for listening have a good week stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly and on the way out dan uh, why don't you give us a little bit of We Bid You Good Night from Boston, April 23rd, Rob? and I bid you good night Good night Good night And I bid you good night Good night I'll I'll
2: bid bid you good, good night Walk in Jerusalem Just
0: have you Good night good Good night.
2: Generally, all the wonderful. Good Good night. Good night. Happy for the beast in the world. Kind of good, good night. Good night. Good Happy night.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview
1: of one of our other shows.
2: Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's Top 100 Influencers in Cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.